Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Five Rings to Rule Them All. I'm Sid Ziegler. As we approach the Paralympic Games, which are kicking off this week, I wanted to have somebody on from Disability Sport. And John Dickinson Lilly and I have been chatting on Twitter, and I thought he'd be the perfect person. He found uh, Parasport after he uh, lost most of his sight. And he has uh, dived headfirst into skiing. And he has an incredible uh, journey that he's gone through uh, discovering this sport and finding his way through it, uh, finding his way through losing 100 pounds. That's not easy. That's, that, that's pretty impressive. So that he could compete at the international level. He talks with me this week about all of that. Plus, one of the things that I've become super present with is the importance of uh, not, well, 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 he calls it um, inspiration porn. That is, the able-bodied people use the Paralympics to kind of, uh, in a way, tell themselves that they are okay and that they look at people competing in Paralympic sports, not as athletes, but as almost people who are doing things that are just unbelievable and, and that able-bodied people can't understand. And his, his, his reflections on all of that and, uh, really have, have gotten me reflecting on my work and the writing that I do. And I just deeply appreciate everything that he has to say today. And it's stuff that I've heard from other people in disability sport. Um, we talk about the terms disability sport and parasport and adaptive sport. And, you know, we talk about language and, you know, I'm just trying to find my way to be the most respectful that I can, um, regardless of who anybody is. So, you know, whatever term that you use, uh, John likes disability sport. So that's the term that we use. Um, also want to flag that I don't know, I thought that I closed all of my uh, windows, but apparently there are a couple of dings and dongs throughout the podcast from Facebook and uh, Google Calendar, and I apologize for that. Um, obviously not my intention, I try to close all my windows, but um, welcome to 2021 when everything is virtual. Anyhow, I, I hope you listen to the entire conversation that I have with John Dickinson Lilly. John, thank you so much for joining me. I just want to start with how did you find skiing? Um, I don't have a dramatic and exciting journey. Uh, to skiing I kind of fell into it I was um I was with a I was I was at work and, and one of my work colleagues said um we've got a place uh, a place on a ski trip um a group of us are going and there's, there's a spare room do you and do you and, and Mark that was my ex want to come along and I was kind of like well you know I'm blind I've got a guide dog skiing blind the two don't really go together in my mind um and my friend was like, no, 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 it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I'm sure someone does it, you know, it's a big wide world. Um, so I said yes anyway, because I thought I might just spend a week kind of like drinking and 
and enjoying lots of fondue and, and, and having kind of nice massages and stuff. Uh, and I, I found a charity called Disability Snowsport UK. They train um, instructors in, um, in, in um, disability snow sports. And there was an instructor based out in Switzerland uh, who I'm still really good friends with. And so that was my journey, really. It was, a, it was two weeks in Zermatt. Um, and that was the beginning. It was two weeks where? In Zermatt in Switzerland, which is possibly my most favourite place to ski in the entire world. Um, Why is that? Where the Matterhorn is. So yeah. um, if you've ever seen the Matterhorn, um, it's dramatic, it's exciting, it's quite glamorous because it's the, the Swiss resorts are quite expensive. So uh, there's a sense of glamour there. Uh, not that I ever stayed anywhere particularly glamorous, um, but there's no such thing as a cheap hotel in Zermatt. <laughs> <laughs> As a, as a true American, I know the Matterhorn from Disneyland. So that's, I, at least I know what it kind of looks like. Um, so you think I can't do this because I'm blind and blind people don't ski. And then what is the journey between there and actually getting on skis in Zermatt and skiing? So um, I, I found this instructor um, and um, booked, booked two weeks um, with this guy. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. Um, and I'm kind of very much like that in my kind of my personality. I'm kind of all or nothing. If you're going to do something, best foot forward, crack on. Um, and if you're not, don't do it. You know, don't take on the, the, the pressure. So I decided to do it. Um, went out there. Um, did the classic recreational skier thing. So bought all the gear I didn't need. Um, very expensive. I think part of that is just sort of, you know, being a gay man as well and the opportunity to go and get some stuff. <laughs> I did that. Right. Um, came came back and um, uh, was kind of fully kitted out and, and ready. And I think um, my first day on snow was awesome in the sense that the instructor was great. So the first thing they, he taught me to do was fall. Yeah. Uh, and actually, you know, anyone who learns to ski falls over quite a lot. Uh, and so by teaching me to fall um, uh, properly, um, I basically managed to fall all the way through my skiing career and never seriously injure myself. Um, all down to my full training, I firmly believe. <laughs> well, that's, listen, I, I, when I was a kid, I, when I learned to ski, that was the first thing they taught us. I was maybe, oh, 10 or 12, because yeah, <laughs> everybody falls in skiing. Exactly, exactly. Um, and I think that, uh, that, I mean, that got me off to a really good start, I think. Um, and so it, it helped take away some of the fear element um, and kind of gave me a sense of control, you know, in a, in, a, in a circumstance where you don't have a lot of control. And, and you know, kind of obviously when people are learning skis, as you've just said, um, it, it can be kind of quite a challenging thing because it's, you know, you're on skis, it's slidey, you don't have all the control that you normally have. And on top of all of that, of course, as someone with really, really, really limited sight, um, you've got this new kind of layer of complexity on it so that gave me kind of real confidence I think to to dig in and have fun which I did <laughs> so I just want to dig into again deeper into everything that you just said 
uh, because I'm you know, always looking to use Outsports and to use this podcast to help build understanding, whether it's a black lesbian or a, a, a blind athlete or somebody in a wheelchair, whatever it is, build understanding. Um, when you say you're very, very, very blind, yeah, what does that mean? Uh, I've got less than 5% of my vision. So I'm registered blind. I'm, I'm legally blind. Um, I've got very little usable sights. The sight that I do have is right in the center of my eyes. I can't see very far. I can basically see stuff that's just about in front of me. But the, the, it's a little bit like looking through straws. So if you look through a, a, you know, a drinking straw, that's the kind of visual field that I have. So it's, it's a pinprick of sight. It's not particularly usable, but the site I do have, I use as well as I can. Um, so, so when I when I talk about being very very blind, that that's about <laughs> that's yeah. about as blind as it can get without being able to see a thing. And and it, you know, it's not like I have a huge amount of usable sight. Well, when you're talking about any kind of sport, that uh, that definitely complicates things. Um, you know, particularly now you're talking about skiing, you're being on skis, people are flying around left and right, up and down. What is the process now of you getting on skis and going down a mountain? How do you, is there somebody who is there with you, guiding you? Um, you know, I like, I know people like gold ball, like there's a, there's a bell in the ball, right? There's no, there's no like audio markers for you to make sure you're, you're going down the slope no so i ski with a sighted guide so we ski completely independently of each other so we're not connected in any way um, we use bluetooth headsets so um our, we have a, a form of uh, verbal feedback um, so we have a conversation i have a, a set of commands that i use and particular kind of techniques and descriptions so that i understand the terrain um, and, and know what I'm, I'm skiing down. I mean, I guess the, the trick to it all is having trust. So having a guide, you don't, you know, I don't necessarily kind of go, now I'm, I'm, I'm not racing. I don't go and visit a random resort and, and you know, we'll just ski behind anybody because I don't have that level of blind trust, <laughs> yeah. as it were. Um, but, you know, I will talk to people, I will find an instructor or I'll talk to the visually impaired people. I'll talk to coaches that I know and trust and say, look, do you know someone who's a really good skier? Um, quite often there are there are coaches with adapt adaptive qualifications and resorts. So finding those people who've had the training experience as well. That's that's great. I mean, the challenge for me, of course, is that finding someone to ski with uh, kind of recreationally is one thing. Um, but finding someone that wants to ski with me recreationally and ski fast is quite another. Um, so I had an experience a few years ago where I was skiing in, um, in Spain and um, the instructor was really panicked um, because I was just a bit too fast for her. And I said, well, you know, there's an easy way around this. You can go quicker. Well, yeah, <laughs> right. <what> <laughs> Um, and she had to unlearn some of her instructor behaviors. So, you know, instructors spend a lot of time looking over their shoulder or they spend time kind of, you know, halfway down a hill waiting for someone to ski down whilst they do a thing. Whereas actually, I don't particularly need coaching. 
I just want someone to ski with. My partner can ski, but he's not very fast. Um, uh, so I can't be guided by him because I'd be bored. <laughs> How do you, you know, I, listen, I, I don't ski anymore, but when I did, there are so many, and, and, and you, I think you probably hit on this about just finding some random trails or areas kind of don't know what's coming up next, uh, you know, and, and, and somebody may be able to guide you, but there might be a mogul or there might be, it could be a, a patch of ice, you know, or something. How do you, how do you navigate all that? I mean, are you just really in tune with what your skis are feeling at the time or how do you get ahead of that? So, um, I mean, you know, so, so the first thing of course, is that, you know, in your head, and this is one of the things that I learned as an elite skier, but the principle is the same. And, and certainly, you know, recreational visually impaired skiers, and there are loads of, of people in the UK that are, that are visually impaired and, and, you know, just ski in, in snow domes or, you know, ski a couple of times a year overseas. What you kind of do is you reprogram your brain a little bit to not worry because you have to accept, you know, and certainly for me, I, I get into that whole controlling the controllables thing. There are things that I can control. So uh, I'll make sure that I'm well rested. I'll make sure that I've kind of eaten. Um, I'll make sure that my equipment's in great condition. Like even now I will take my skis and make sure the edges are sharp and they're waxed. And, you know, I'll wear, you know, my best, my best boots, my favorite boots, the ones that I know are kind of like stepping up and all that kind of, uh, all that kind of stuff. So I'll do all the things that I know I can, um, that, that give me confidence and control. Um, I'll make sure I've warmed up so I'm not going to injure myself randomly. You know, all of those bits and pieces. Um, do a bit of a warm-up run just to get back into the you know back into back into skiing in the morning or whatever it is if you if you're if you're starting fresh or just doing another day um and then and then after that really you've just got to ski and go for it and you know if you hit a patch of ice then you get ice um and my guide will say ice if you hit cookies so you know death cookies those little chunks of ice where you get patches of chunks of ice um they'll just shout out cookies um, you know, if they spot something um, and, you know, it's avoidable and navigable, they'll tell me to turn. If it's a long term to avoid something, they'll go turn and elongate the word. Um, and, and, you know, so you kind of, you know, there are ways, there are tools and tricks that you can use to, to, to manage all of that. But I mean, the bottom line is be in the right place in your boots, be in the right place in your skis. Don't be sitting back because if you're in the back seat, on your skis, you're gonna fall, um, uh, and and so that's that's it really. And you know, um, I, I have moguled. It's not my, it's not my most favourite thing, largely because my knees are uh, getting tired nowadays. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I do uh, I do powder, um, so I do off piste, um, and, and I have done moguls. Um, it's fun, right? Oh God, I hate moguls. <laughs> I, I, I was definitely one who didn't own it the way you did. I, you know, I, I had a, I had a lot of trouble attacking the hill. Yeah, getting forward in my skis and just saying, "Go for it." <laughs> I don't know. It was I, you know, as someone who's, I guess, a. I don't know, addicted to his sight, I was always looking for what 
you know, what's lurking around the corner ready to jump out and attack me on the ski slope. So, so I didn't make a very good skier. There's a reason, <laughs> there's a reason I stopped. But, but that's a human thing, right? You do risk a situation. So you look at everything and you think, oh, well, what's this, what's this situation going to present with me? And I think that's where, I think that's where really, you know, transitioning out of recreational skiing and into elite ski racing is, is very different. So um, I was supported by a sports psych um, along with the rest of the British team. And, and, you know, one of the things that um, we worked on was controlling the controllables. And, and so kind of really grounding yourself in the things that you can control. There are things that you can directly control. So, you know, that might be your, your rest or your nutrition or your equipment. There are the things that you can maybe influence. So that might be, for example, um, I don't know if you're having a uh, if you're having a bad day with your guide and maybe you're not kind of you know you're not gelling or you've you've had a you know a disagreement or whatever and um, there are things there that you can influence try and bring things back on track and then there are things that you can't control and the, the key thing about those things that you can't control is you just have to put them away you can't own them so if you start trying to influence a thing you can't control you become frustrated. And when you become frustrated, you lose focus. And when you lose focus, you lose ability. And so it's a slippery slope. And so you have to park that stuff and then focus on the stuff that you can do. So being forward in your boots, being centered over the ski and making sure that you're not tipping it, making sure that you're leaning out and down, you know, all of those kinds of, you know, the basics, but, but it's always getting the basics right that makes all the other stuff come. How did you get into competitive skiing? What was the impetus? Um, gosh, that's a really good question. So I think um, I, I think partly ego, because <laughs> I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it's um, I think any any athlete to an extent has got to be driven a bit by ego. Like you know, you want to be the world's best, right? Um, you don't want to be the world's best just because. You want to be the world's best because it matters to you. Um, and I think I, I so I spent I did a couple of ski holidays um, and, and with this with this instructor, my friend Ben, um, and he said to me and he coached the British team and he said, uh, you've got the makings of a racer if you're up for it, but it's hard work. Um, and. I went away and I had to think about it. And then I found out a little bit about the team. Um, and I went away and, and attended a, a development day. So, you know, um, where they just kind of like meet you and then get you on snow and look at how you ski and stuff like that. And so I went to this development day and uh, they said, uh, basically, you just need to be a better skier. So go away and be a better skier and then come back, have some lessons. So I went off and I, I was skiing every single week, at least once a week, if not twice a week, uh, indoors in a snow dome, which, you know, I, I, <laughs> I don't know if you have them in the States, but it's quite literally a huge indoor leisure centre with a hill with real snow. Um, and, um, uh, and so I trained indoors um, and then I went back for a second development day. And then they said, yeah, your skiing's a bit better, but you've got to ski even better. So you need to do more lessons and you're fat. <laughs> um uh and they didn't pull any punches so i was let me think 
So I was at the time about 125, 130 kilos, maybe. Um, that's, that's a good amount. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I wasn't thin by any stretch of the imagination. Um, and, and so I went away and I knocked my weight down to 70 kilos. Wow. How? And I did that. Like, what did you do to lose all that weight? So stop eating a lot. <laughs> so, so yeah, eat what your body needs and, and don't eat more. Um, and then, um, exercise. So, um, you know, obviously kind of when you're visually impaired, trying to, to, you know, things like the gym are quite scary places. I mean, the gym's kind of quite, can be quite unwelcoming generally, if you're not a kind of a certain type of white male that likes pumping iron, right? So no, generally, right. You know, lots of people find them difficult. I still find them difficult if I'm honest. Um, and uh, so I went to, I went to a, found a community gym um, near my, near my office in central London. Um, and there was a really nice instructor there. And basically I spent quite a lot of time on, you know, a cross trainer and elliptical trainer. Um, and so we'd do like an hour a day, minimum six days a week. Um, and then, um, and then I pushed it up to seven. I then sorted out my diet. So I kind of went for a low carb, low fat, um, low GI kind of diet. So kind of very kind of middle of the road. Um, but, but that was it really. That's how I achieved the weight loss. Um, and that obviously then makes you able to do more, increases your ability to be more physically active. Um, but it was because I've got my mind set on an objective <laughs> and, uh, and I knew that if I wanted to even get onto a development squad, there were some basics that I had to get right. And one of them was being physically fit. Yeah, well, for the Americans listening at home, that's a loss of about 100 pounds. And it, it, you know, even when I'm, you know, my white weight fluctuating, I'll gain 10 pounds, those pesky 10 pounds and want to get them off. And it really is, it, it is diet. And, and I found that if I just eat a ton of vegetables and fruit, the weight starts falling off because um, it means I'm not, I'm, I'm not eating a lot of the other things. And to your point, having some goal, you know, you knew what you wanted to achieve and it's not easy sometimes when, gosh, you, your partner's having a, a, a cookie after lunch and, oh God, you want that cookie. So yeah. <laughs> but you got to remember, nope, I'm not going to do it. And uh, it's amazing. I mean, a hundred pounds, how long did it take you to lose that? Uh, it took me uh, about a year and a half. Yeah. Um, so that's a year and a, that's a year and a half um and you're just you're just focused on elite level skiing and getting on uh getting on the team um at what did it take a year and a half to accomplish that goal pretty much so uh basically they they were running a set of development days and um i went after uh, i'd i'd lost the weight and um uh they were like uh, yep, yeah, it looks like you've made an effort. And I think that's one of the things that they were looking at as well. So it's not just a matter of, um, you know, can you ski? It's about have you got the, the mindset, you know, because the, the, there, is, there is a real responsibility, I think, on teams. And sometimes teams do it and sometimes they don't. 
but there's a real responsibility on NGBs to for teams to spot whether the person maybe has the raw material. And I think if you can't do something like focus on your diet, eat less, do more exercise. And I, I know it's not that simple, but it's something that you can control personally. And if you're not able to do that for whatever reason, that's that's fine. I'm not criticizing people, but that's what you do need to do to be an elite athlete. It's part of the job. Um, and so I think that was a big signal to them. And I had also improved my skiing. Um, and so I was, I was taken on to the development squad. Um, and that was just before Vancouver. The Vancouver winter Paris feels like a million years ago. Where did you travel to to compete? Uh, Europe. So um, certainly in development, um, you know, you can do the NORAMs and stuff like that and you can head out stateside or, or you can um, you can go down under um, and, you know, ski New Zealand and stuff. But I focus mainly on Europe, partly because uh, I was still working. So, you know, I was, you know, one of the challenges of being is certainly kind of being an older athlete. Um, you know, I didn't have a, a bank of mum and dad to support right. me. Um, so I was self-funded uh, for, for almost all of my career. Um, and, you know, having to do that and scheme and actually I had to think about it kind of slightly pragmatically as well. So lots of skiing in France, lots of skiing in Italy, uh, Switzerland, Austria. Austria is great for skiing. Um, so yeah, piling around quite a lot in Europe. Um, and in the early days, I mean, I was probably only doing kind of like 30, 40 days a year on snow. So that's in development. Um, because actually the, the things you need to be doing are things you don't need to be on a mountain to do, you know, it's physical fitness or it's, it's about technique and you can do that indoors on a short hill. Um, and, and things like working with a guide. You know, those are those are like your bread and butter things. So I spent quite a lot of time doing that, um, and then going out and racing when I when when I had to, and doing training camps and stuff like that. You weren't just skiing; you were really you were also focused on becoming an advocate and um, mm. for equality. What drove you to do that? To become a face of the sport and 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 drive conversations uh, that's a really difficult question i think some of it kind of like lies with me personally so um i have i i, I my sight loss kind of just happened it's a neurological condition so it just happened suddenly so um i was uh, it, apparently i've been losing sight during my teens uh, and it was never spotted so i started to lose sight from the outside in if that makes sense mm -hmm. um uh, and so it wasn't easily spotted and it wasn't until my late teens and, and early 20s it was really identified and then between kind of like the ages of 18 and about 26 i lost nearly all of my sight so I went through a rapid program of rehab, learning to use a white cane, getting a guide dog, um, you know, kind of reskilling myself and retooling my life, as it were. Um, and, and all of a sudden I went from kind of like a, you know, privileged kind of relatively ordinary kind of, 
young person uh, although to be fair being gay in the 90s wasn't fun <laughs> but actually that was kind of almost the least of my worries um kind of a you know a, the, the whole sight loss thing was was a bit of a game changer and I realized how much of the world is literally set up against groups of people and I thought this isn't right it's just you know it's not right that um you know I can't get married because I'm gay. It's not right that I can't give blood because I'm gay, even when they're desperate for blood. It's not right that there's a law which prevents my local authority, my local council, from even ensuring that I can access sexual health information. It's not right that I have to sit in a class learning about how straight people have sex and there is nothing in there to help me and prepare me. You know, at a time when HIV and AIDS didn't have proper treatment and you know, all of those other things. And I just sat there going, this is, this is beyond it. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I was learning all of a sudden that, that I couldn't use a cash machine uh, anymore. And uh, I couldn't read a, a menu in a restaurant. Like, you know, some really kind of basic entry level kind of stuff, if you think about, you know, what I call the currency of life. Um, <laughs> I was like, this is, this, is not, this is not a world that I want to to you know entertain i guess and so i need to do something about it that was it really so what did you do like you know how do you how do you go from i'm just you know on my skis or i'm just you know joe schmo on the street to i'm really going to start speaking up about this i'm really going to do something about it what did you do so um i was a, a member of the national union of students um, which kind of almost every every higher education, so kind of university level student in the UK is. Um, and um, I eventually got elected to their National Executive Committee. Um, so that's a you know a nationwide organisation that does lots of campaigning on on on, on big issues. And um, I was surrounded by some really fabulous women, um, uh, all kind of uh, lesbian and bi women, all tremendously. Uh, confident and awesome and inspiring they were all campaigners on a range of issues not just kind of lgbt issues but disability women's rights you name it so i had kind of like some some kind of role models and i also was in an environment which was all about campaigning so i started kind of i was being trained as a campaigner i guess and that's sort of how i fell into my professional career as a comms professional um uh, as well um, and so I kind of thought, do you know what? There's something in this. I can help change the world. Um, and so that was the start of my that was the start of my journey, I guess, into into advocacy. I think where I ended up and why I do what I do now is because I have a bit of a platform, and um, I know that my platform can help foment change. It's not the sole driver of change. It will never be that, for, for, of course. I'm only, I'm only one person. But I can sometimes use that position to ask some of the difficult questions because actually uh, I'm not going to necessarily feel the repercussions that other people who might, for example, still be in sport uh, feel. What, when you talk to straight cisgender people about LGBTQ rights, or you talk to uh, able-bodied people about disability sports, 
Is there a general theme that runs through the, the, the things you've talked to them about and how they can help people not like them? Yeah, I see. I mean, I, I might pick up disability sport first because it's a really interesting one, um, particularly with the paras. Um, there, is a, there is a really, really tough narrative for disabled people um, when things like the Paralympics come around, because all of a sudden there's this conversation about being superhuman. Um, yeah. And uh, in, in particularly in my disability activist circles, it's actually called inspiration porn, where, um, where disabled people are objectified in this way, um, I guess, and, and we're pointed to. And it's kind of like, well, it doesn't matter what your daily struggle is, because look at that disabled person. They're still managing to do that despite their disability. Um, and, and so for lots of disabled people, it's, you know, the paras and stuff are quite conflicting moments. On the one hand, they want, you know, we all want to be inspired by amazing athletic performances. But on the other hand, there's this kind of like, there's this weird kind of inspiration porn thing going on. And equally, there's a narrative that actually, do you know what, if any old disabled person just sorted their head out a bit and tried a bit harder, they could be a Paralympian too. And obviously mm. that's complete nonsense. You know, the most able-bodied people can't be an Olympian, uh, no matter how hard they think, <laughs> no matter yeah. how hard they try, they won't have this, the, the ability. And that's the same for, for Paralympians and for para-athletes. It's just, uh, and so I think times like this, I think it's really important that we go, yeah, let's admire those Paralympians for athletic performances. Um, the interesting thing about that, the, uh, one of the facts that I always share around the Paralympics is para is not anything to do with, with paralyzed or paralysis or any of those other things. It, 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 the original kind of source is parallel. It was a parallel games um, oh. which is where the para comes from. And, and I think it, it's really important that, that the general public kind of understand that they can be inspired by those athletic performances because they're outstanding performances, not because the person has a set of running blades on or not because they, they deliver that performance in spite of their disability. Um, and, and please don't use those performances in a way that, uh, you know, to, to effectively make you feel a bit better about your life. <laughs> Is that too mean? <laughs> no, I, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah, like, yeah, don't, yeah, if, 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 if you look at a, a Paralympian and you think, gosh, I have it so good in my life because, you know, I, I'm not in a wheelchair access. I, I, I completely hear what you're saying. And, and we've had these conversations actually with Outsports this week. And I was on a phone call with my family uh, this week talking about this, how, you know, I don't think that you will look at Outsports and see oh, this, um, this person is so inspirational. Like we've said, that's not a headline. If you look at our headlines, we're telling these people stories that, you know, Monique Matthews' husband is transitioning and this person is going for their fourth medal. And, and I, I, I don't think, I, I hope, that when you look at Outsports coverage, you don't think, here we go, more inspiration porn, which is such, it's such a great term because we want to tell people stories and, 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 and give people insights into their lives, which is why I asked you so many questions just about the process 
that you go through because I think that builds understanding, but I'm not here to, 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 to turn you into inspiration porn and make people go, oh, isn't that lovely? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would say as well, if you ever want to, to watch a great TEDx, look for Stella Young. Uh, she's a she, she's she's sadly passed away now, but Stella coined the phrase uh, inspiration porn, and she's got an amazing TEDx where she talks about uh, about inspiration porn in the context of disability. I mean, I I think the the power of having you know to 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 the LGBT kind of key point of having uh, out athletes is that you know everybody everybody no matter what they do whether it's whether it's buying a buying lunch, going to go, you know, getting a new job, wherever it is, you want to be able to be in a place where you can identify with other people. They go, oh, there's someone like me. That's called belonging. It's called community. It's it's a very basic human emotion and, and desire. Uh, and it's totally legitimate. And I think one of the most important things for me, and, and, and you know, it is, it, it, you know, it certainly was a burden when I was an athlete, if I'm honest, but being out is incredibly important because for all of those those young kind of kids that are out there that are being told no you have to you have to live in this in this gender conforming space or you have to I you know you you can't possibly be an athlete because you're a gay boy um, and gay boys don't do sports um, like that's what I had when I was at school and how many athletes how many athletes have slipped through the net how much talent have nations lost? Because those young people who had the aptitude, the commitment, the ability, you know, probably even the passion locked up somewhere and they just didn't because this environment was built around a certain group of people. So I'm really passionate about kind of saying it's, 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 it's great and being out there, I guess, um, and being very open about my sexuality and, and being open about the challenges I had as an athlete. Cause you know, equally, I don't want to, to, to kind of pitch this uh, and say, you know, wherever you go, it will be totally fine. You only have to like look at the stories of other LGBTQ athletes and know that it's probably not going to be brilliant, but it probably won't be any worse than other parts of your life. <laughs> Is the reality. Well, that, that's we found it out sports and and we have a nor, very north american centric perspective from our experiences but uh the acceptance is is pretty widespread in sports in north america and but but seeing through the structures and the environment of sports and the locker room talk and and the messages that get sent that's really hard to see through all of that to the acceptance yeah it really is. I don't say I, I, I would say I never had an experience where I would say I wasn't accepted. But I would say that there was a lens and a focus on me that other people didn't have on them. So I remember being uh, away with the team um, and being asked whether I was a top or a bottom. But it wasn't, I'm at a top or a bottom. It wasn't even that. It was like, are you the male or the female? So it was kind of like very gendered language and it was very misogynistic and it had all of those implications of power and passivity and so on. And actually, um, I was quite, as you might imagine, I, I, I was, was quite clear that it was no one's business what, what my sexual role was. Yeah. Um, and second, 
uh, I pointed out that it was also sexist. And, you know, what, 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 what was the relevance for them? What was the, what was the importance to them as a group of people? And, um, you know, there was another occasion where um, a fellow athlete, a fellow athlete um, was having a conversation with another athlete a little bit further down the table where they were sharing the view that um, being gay is an environmental thing that we learn it. And then, you know, again, I intervened and said, well, do you know what? Do you think I learned to sit at a dining table and listen to your nonsense? I don't <laughs> think I did. I don't think I opted into that. And, and I'm, you know, I'm incredibly proud of being gay, incredibly proud. Um, but those those things, and it's it's kind of locker room behaviour, right? and and you know I would ba I, I can banter, I do banter, I am a raconteur, you know I do that, that's fine, um, and and to some extent you need to have that to have a degree of camaraderie, you need the, the you know the team spirit and stuff, but actually the reality is when you're part of a team, most of the time they're probably not people you would pick to spend time with. Yeah. You know, it's just not, it's not the at way higher to, levels, but at higher level sports, you're often very right. Yeah. You know, you, you sometimes you're, you, you know, you, you're, you're in a place because everyone else is in a place and you're all at a certain level. So you're all, you know, competing together or whatever. Um, but I had, I had a lot of experiences like that. And I think the, the challenge for me wasn't even the fact the conversations happened, actually, I could almost roll with that because, you know, it's the kind of stuff that, that LGBTQ people face all the time uh, it was the fact that none of the staff intervened so yeah. i was on my own with the conversation um, well and they trained. It, well so, you know it's it's because of you and because of these conversations that next year or the next person to come along the staff will intervene and they are becoming more aware and it's you know that's that that's part of your legacy um and, you know, the legacy of everybody who's willing to be out and talk about these things. Uh, but, John, I'm running out of time now. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I can't believe I, 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 I literally lost. I literally lost track of time. Um, <laughs> this is I, I, I well, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is I hope you'll come back for more conversation because uh, I, I, I'm really enthralled with what you have to say. Um, I appreciate your time now and and we'll keep following what you're doing it's a it's, it's really lovely to speak to you Sid and um always happy to help and always happy to support I think the stuff that that Outsport's doing is incredible it you know you can roll back the, the clock you know organizations like Outsports are making my sport a better place for people like me you know right now and I, I think just the, the, the visibility the presence it's amazing. So thank you for what you do. It's awesome. You can find John Dickinson Lilly at JDL Skier on Twitter. And I hope you'll be following Outsports coverage of the Paralympic Games in the coming couple of weeks. There are some incredible athletes and playing some really cool sports that I've certainly become a fan of and enjoy watching. And hope you'll tune in and follow what we're doing, share what we're doing and elevate the profile of these athletes just don't get the recognition that they frankly deserve. All the hard work, determination, athleticism that goes into these sports, they just get overlooked far too often. And we're excited to highlight 
how each of the out LGBTQ athletes does at the Paralympic Games. So anyhow, I hope you'll, you'll tune in for the next couple of weeks and we will talk to you next week.